0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The only thing that matters in novels is feeling. Mm -hmm. And fact is is the structure and the kind of thing you hang feeling off. But no one needs to know exactly the amount of time a carriage got from Berlin to Hamburg in the 1300s. Sometimes the public discourse feels very deadening (laughs) and very very samey. And so all I'm ever trying to do is is find a different language, a more intimate language to kind of whisper in somebody's ear rather than screaming in their face, if you know what I mean. I'm no saint, Um, but any discourse which um, finishes an absolute finality I can't deal with.
1: I'm Sarah Fenske. Tomorrow, Zadie Smith arrives in St. Louis. The London-born novelist and essayist has had a huge following ever since her first novel, White Teeth, became a sensation. She was just 24. Today, at 46, she has five novels to her credit, as well as several story collections and three books of essays. And now she's the recipient of this year's St. Louis Literary Award, joining luminaries that include Arthur Miller, Joan Didion, and Margaret Atwood. And she joins us today, Zadie Smith welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on your award. You're in such good company for this one. Does that feel big? Um, it, it feels surreal, to be,
0: to be honest. I have no idea what I'm doing on this list, but I'm very glad to, to be there. It's incredible. <gasps>
1: Well, so the St. Louis Literary Award, they look for a writer who has, quote, enriched our literary heritage by deepening our insight into the human condition and by expanding the scope of our compassion. And when I heard that, I thought, man, that is Zadie Smith on the nose. Do you feel like expanding the scope of our compassion is something that you think about consciously as you write? I'm always
0: trying to find different ways to think about things. I guess that's the way I put it. I I feel quite often, I'm sure a lot of people feel this, that sometimes the public discourse feels very deadening (laughs) and very, (laughs) (laughs) very samey. And so all I'm ever trying to do is, is find a different language, a more intimate language to kind of whisper in somebody's ear rather than Screaming in their face, if you know what I mean.
1: So that more intimate language, it feels frankly a little bit out of fashion in this moment that we're in right now. Like so many people are so angry and they almost treat it like a moral failing if you're not angry as well. Have you felt people like pushing you? Like stop trying to do this in this, this whispering way. We want you to shout. I, I don't think anger is always
0: best expressed by exclamation marks and capital letters. <laughs> I, th- I think there are other ways to express anger and other ways to um express what you think is important i i'm i'm always more interested in putting my focus on what i think is of worth and of focusing on w- what is of worth and what is joyful but i, I have plenty of anger You're like i'm no saint um but i any discourse which um finishes in absolute finality i can't deal with like for instance the, the i have a son so i can get very angry at men and the behavior of men, but I still have a son and something has to be done about this son. <laughs> <laughs> he still has to be raised. I still have to have a relationship with him. And to me, all life is like that. There's a continuity that uh, ideology can never get to. So, so you have to find some way to live.
1: And so with your son, like you can't take the tack, for example, that all men are evil or all men are no. bad because here's this, here's this boy that you raised.
0: Right. And like most people, I also have father and <laughs> brothers and cousins. So the relationality of life is incredibly complex. It doesn't mean that you can't have you know ideological positions and, and political beliefs. But I'm a novelist, so I'm concerned with the relation between people how it works, how sometimes it doesn't work, how sometimes it's ridiculous, tragic, comic. That's my business.
1: So this this reminds me of your essay, Suffering Like Mel Gibson, um, that I really enjoyed. This was an essay that you wrote during the pandemic, sort of in response to the pandemic, where you were grappling with sort of the hierarchy of pandemic suffering. And I feel like right. this is something we've all done, not nearly as articulately as, as you did, but it's like I have kids. And so I'm thinking, oh, those single people, I'm so jealous of them right now that they don't have these kids. And at the same time, they're thinking the same thing. I wish I was surrounded by, by these, these right. children. Children, um, tell us a bit about your thinking as you're sort of grappling with that idea and all that com- comparing that we were doing. I, well, I think I think of them sometimes
0: as a Venn diagram. That there is always uh, places of diversion, but there's always some place of uh, sameness. And the sameness is that we're all human animals facing death. <laughs> to be honest, that is our human condition, our basic human condition. Within that, there is all kinds of variety, and always. A correction. Like right now, before I was speaking to you, I was re- reading Elizabeth Strout. Mm. And sometimes uh, I can think of my childhood and think, you know, I, I was poor or poorer than the average kid. And then I read about Lucy Barton and think, I, I don't know what poverty means. If that's mm-hmm. poverty, I have no idea what poverty means. And for me, life is like a continual series of corrections of this kind.
1: They're not punishing, they're just interesting. Yeah, you talk in this this same essay you talk about how privilege cannot be applied without modification to the category of suffering. You write, "Suffering has an absolute relation to the suffering individual. It cannot be easily mediated by a third term like privilege. If it could, the CEO's daughter would never starve herself, nor the movie idol ever put a bullet in his own brain." That really made me stop in my tracks. Do you think by focusing so much on privilege in recent years, we're kind of missing out on just some of the complications of of being human?
0: No, it's true that any individual can suffer and suffer to the point of death, but it's also true that there are conditions in life which make suffering far more likely. (laughs) Poverty, the absence of education, the absence of healthcare. That's what politics is concerned with. Creating structures in which suffering is less likely, but it can never be completely removed
1: and And you talk quite a bit. I don't mean to keep going back to intimations, but this is it's such a such a good book. There's so many essays here that sort of grapple with the way that we live um, and going back to this idea that we're all gonna die, and frankly the American denial of that idea. do you think this last year gave us the wake-up call as as americans you're You're partially an American now if I can claim you as such. Um, right. did that give us the wake-up call that we clearly needed
0: um wake up calls are very partial. I remember in the middle of this pandemic saying things like, or thinking things like I would never buy clothes again. (laughs) I I would never worry about the education of my children. Why did it matter? What does anything matter? We'll just be together and hold each other and move towards death. Of course, now the pandemic is moving out. I've bought many dresses and I think a lot about the homework of my children and many other small flaws return entirely intact. So I guess that's something I'm also interested in, the, the limits of people vanities, their delusions. That's another thing politics can protect us from somehow. Sometimes good structures can stop us from being the worst kind of people we very easily can be.
1: Yeah. And maybe we can't think about death all the time. I mean, if we were constantly just sort of coming to terms with that thought, we would never never be able to do anything else. Like it would just be too depressing.
0: Perhaps that's true. But without a concept of an ending, there would be there'd be no meaning whatsoever. <laughs> You'd <laughs> yes. be depressed out of your mind. It's hard to believe, but an infinite life would be one impossible to live. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's a good point. Yeah. yeah, we almost need that ending. That's That's what gives structure to the whole thing. We need that ending. And so there, I mean, that's sort of you thinking as a novelist, and yet your pandemic book, this this project, was a book of essays. What made you turn to nonfiction in the middle of this versus the great comic pandemic novel? Um. It was really practical. I was
0: very aware of being, um, you know, useless and and non-essential in the most fundamental way that someone (laughs) can be non-essential. That was me. Um, And so I thought, well, what is it I can do? I have this one thing I can type. And if I could do that and do it quickly, I could make money for people who actually do things. So, So that's how it worked. I thought of these two institutions. Um, COVID in New York, the mayor's fund and Brian Stevenson's fund. Um, and I just thought if I could write quickly enough and sell it quickly enough, I could do something practical. And so essays were the natural form for that.
1: It's interesting to hear you talk about writing because, frankly, I've loved your writing for so long. I mean, you, you make me laugh, you make me cry, and yet you treat writing so unromantically compared to every other writer I've ever interviewed. I mean, you're talking about this now. This was a way to make money. You also have an essay in this book where you talk about writing is it's something to do. You write, there is no great difference between novels and banana bread. They are both just something to do. They are no substitute for love do you think people who get really i don't know artsy and and high-minded about writing are they missing just what it is at its core is maybe going back no (laughs) no i mean i I love
0: i love writing i i I believe in it absolutely but i think something i perhaps have in common with elizabeth strout if you come from working people uh you know that writing is not labor of that kind you know Mm -hmm. i mean if you've seen people work and really work uh you can't really believe in writing as a as a special and separate entity because when it comes naturally to you i suppose uh, to me it doesn't feel like labor but as a reader if you ask me as a reader and if i look down this list of writers for the saint louis literary awards uh these people have you know changed my life so i know i know it as a reader i feel it very strongly as a reader that they shape your consciousness and shape your life and as you say make you laugh make you cry but but as a writer, I've, I I've hold that, that thought at a distance, I guess.
1: Hmm. So once you've seen how hard it is to lay tile or to, to lay brick, um, th- the troubles of writing, the difficulties that, that you have to do grappling in your own mind, those those just don't compare for you.
0: No, I, I guess, like with my father, he, he was not educated and he would have liked to be. But even when I sold white teeth, I remember he always was worried about, about me and wished I'd write more journalism or anything that looked more like a job (laughs) and (laughs) he was very happy when I got a university job and this to him was you know a job real work so I I guess that kind of stuck in my mind a little bit Um, and also I I just believe in writing as it's an artisanship like anything else like I have an uncle who lays floors anybody who makes anything and tries to make it well and beautifully is an artist I don't mean that as Mm-hmm. Uh, he, fake humility. We're, we're on a continuum together, making things.
1: Yeah, the idea of doing work well done—that's important. You're not—you're not, you're not sluffing that off whatsoever.
0: No, no, that's incredibly important. I—I I spend as much time on every sentence as my uncle
1: spends on his floors. I can tell you that. So when you <laughs> say writing comes easily for you, it maybe comes easy in some ways, but it—it's not easy. No, it's it's. Um, you know, you can be
0: fluid. There are certain, uh, th- sometimes I say to my students, there's such a thing as a, a natural writer, but that doesn't mean you're a good writer. I think of myself as a natural, natural writer and maybe someone like Charles Dickens is a natural writer, but Dickens wrote bad books and I write bad books sometimes. <laughs> a natural writer is somebody who has a felicity, right? Mm-hmm. But that's just one thing you need to write. There's many other things.
1: So I have to ask, you've written a bad book. I don't feel that I've read your bad book. Which which was the bad book? I think I'm going to keep those opinions to myself
0: <laughs> <laughs> before I get in trouble in front of the St. Louis.
1: I guess your publisher Old. might not might not want you to do that. <laughs> well, okay. So so going back to the books that you've written, your last novel, this was in 2016, Swing Time. I loved this book. Do you think that you're going to be turning again to the novel, or do you feel like essays are are kind of the oh, mood that no, you're in?
0: No. I'm in the middle of a novel and I'm so um, happy. And uh, I'm just delighted to be in a novel. And uh, I remember about it how how basically escapist it is. That's another kind of slightly unknowable thing about writing is that when you're in it, everything else disappears. And in a year like 2020, it was nice to be elsewhere even for a little part of each day, wonderful.
1: So there was this whole idea in the middle of the pandemic, I think at the same point that some of us were saying things like we'd never buy new clothes or we didn't care about education, that people said, you know, the novel, how can the novel even go on in the middle of this life has been so fundamentally transformed. How do you deal with that? Is this a pre-pandemic novel, a post-pandemic novel? Uh, It's very pre, I mean, it's set in 1830. (laughs) So that's how you deal with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's very, very pre. and that, you're absolutely right, that's how I dealt with it, all the, it's not that I don't pay very close attes- attention to all the issues of the day, I do, what interests me in them sometimes is their deep roots, so for me this is a book about England, a book about Jamaica, a book about the diaspora, a book about how we got here, but, but it goes a long way back, but for me sometimes you have to go a long way back, the, the news feed doesn't give you the information you need to understand, always.
1: Yeah, I mean, we almost don't know what some of these things mean because they're still happening, whereas right. you can look back at this time, you have a sense of, of what it means or or what it's going to mean for this story. Right. Are, aren't there, though, terrible complications trying to write a historical novel? Are you having to do a ton of research in, into that era?
0: I thought I would never write one. I thought whenever I had a friend who wrote one, I would be truly amazed. Um, and I remember talking to a, a very famous German novelist called Daniel Kilman, who lived near me in New York, and he'd just written one set in the 1300s. <laughs> and I was, yeah, I w- would watch him every day reading these huge tomes on the period. Um, and I asked him, How do you do it? And he said, Well, in the beginning, I would worry about things like, How does the carriage get from Berlin to Hamburg? And I would phone 50 academics and ask, How long does a carriage get to go to Berlin to Hamburg? And they'd all give me different answers. And he said, I concluded, it really doesn't matter. I will write, the carriage went to Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a very good policy in a historical novel, not to get bogged down in what is genuinely unnecessary. The only thing that matters in novels is feeling. Mm -hmm. And fact is, is the structure and the kind of thing you hang feeling off but but no one needs to know exactly the amount of time a carriage got from Berlin to Hamburg in the 1300s
1: and do you think the feeling and and that humanity that's at the core of all your books do you think people were fundamentally the same in the 1890s as as the people we have today uh
0: no I, I think you're in the same relation to death that stays that's the little bit of the venn diagram that stays the same but uh, for you or I, eighteen thirty could mean ten children and seven of them dead. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a completely different human being, a completely different consciousness, a completely different idea of life, childhood, everything. So no, n- not not in any way the same. That's what's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, this sounds like man, you're you're really plunging into this. Um, but it, it sounds like it's going well. I mean, you're feeling that excitement and and as you say that escapism. Yeah, it, it's very. Um,
0: it's very joyful writing a novel when it's going well. I'd, I'd perhaps forgotten, so it's nice to return to it.
1: So I have to ask, you've mentioned Elizabeth Stroud a couple of times, and, and she's just so great. I assume you're reading her new book, *Oh William? I am. Is that <laughs> hard as you're writing a novel to read another novelist who's so good and yet has their own very unique style? Are you worried you, you'll get that voice in your head?
0: It, it depends. I know exactly what you mean, but I have to say when Elizabeth is concerned... You don't have such fears. <laughs> there's too much. <laughs> there's too much pleasure on the page, and uh, I, I only ever feel positive about the novel as a form when I read her. And a few days ago, I read. I just saw in the list Chinuere Achebe, who was, I think, the ninety ninety nine winner of the. I think Spanish that's right. Award. Yeah. Award, and uh, I read *Things Fall Apart*, which I hadn't read in 20 years, and that's another perfect masterpiece, like this perfect novel. such small size and such delicacy. And when you read something like that, it's just inspiring that the novel can have that power. Sometimes you can forget it.
1: You know, reading your, your work, it's just so clear how much you love reading. I think you said at one point that you haven't gotten a manicure in years because that would distract you from being able to just read all the time. Um, it just feels like, you know, your dad might have meant for you to become a journalist or to have a more stable career, but you're really doing exactly what you're meant to do. Do you feel that every day? Like, man, like, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm this novelist and this is just the best. Uh, that's so f- odd that you say that i
0: I do feel that recently. I mean, I never noticed that when I was young that i'm I'm best fit for what I'm doing. That's the best way I can put it, mm-hmm. and you would wish for everyone exactly that in a just society that people did what they were best fit to do, whether it was great or small that it they brought them pleasure that they felt their skills fulfilled,
1: yeah. But I feel like you you absolutely have that and that we're all so lucky for it. So I want to congratulate you again on this honor. Um, you've thank 100% you. earned it. And, and, man, I mean, we're just so lucky to have your book. So, Zadie Smith, thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Evie Hemphill with audio engineering by Aaron Dore and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.